0: From the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio, this is In Black America. My approach to our company is to really create ways to measure those three things, and it boils down to one thing, and that's cash flow. Our company is cash flow driven. We're not driven by IRR. We're not driven by profit, per se. We're driven by how much cash the company produces in a given quarter, uh, and that answers all questions because with cash, you have a strong balance sheet. With cash, you have money to independently invest. And with cash, you have something by which to measure the value of the company. You can measure it on a multiple of the money. And so that's been our, my mantra. And I, when I talk to other entrepreneurs, other people in business, I really focus, particularly minority companies, on those three things with the the most important uh, measure of those three things being cash flow. And that being said, we make money then in three ways. One is we have rents. And after we collect rents, we still spend about 50% operating, the, uh, 40 to 50% operating the, the house uh, uh, because we operate the dry quality, so we make net income. Second is we have home appreciation, value appreciation, so uh, we do very, very well because we create so much value that by the time we're done, the house has worked considerably more than what we bought it for and what we invested in it. And third, the company itself has value because we have cash flow, and as I mentioned, you can use that to measure the value of the company.
1: Tawan Davis, Chief Executive Officer and Managing Partner of Steinbridge Group. The Steinbridge Group is a real estate investment company with a data driven investment decision making model. Davis is brilliant, passionate, and a fascinating entrepreneur. His investment group has structured, executed, and invested nearly $1 billion in commercial and residential real estate. Under his leadership, which includes managing the investment program and overseeing the day to day operations, Simon's group is now investing more than $425 million in the urban single-family home market. Their strategy is unique. They focus on the northeastern section of the country, where other large investors have not bought homes. Also, they have a long-term commitment to assist working-class families in transitional neighborhoods. I'm Johnny O. Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America, On this week's program, Tawan David, CEO of the Steinbridge Group in Black America.
0: I was 35, 36-ish, probably 36-ish, and uh, I woke up one morning and I said to myself, what do I want to be doing at 50? And I had had some great great career opportunities I was blessed with a remarkable education and uh, I thought to myself what do I want to be doing at 50 and it was clear to me that I wanted to be able to be running a a, a leading a firm and I wanted to be able to do it in a way that was broadly impactful so I didn't have to make the decision about whether to do well or to do good but that the integration of those two is the driving force of our company's philosophy and if you really think about the best businesses in the world there are businesses that solve problems, that have identified a particular problem, and they solve that problem, and there is income opportunities in solving those problems. And so that's really
1: what I wanted to focus on. Tawon Davis's upbringing in Portland, Oregon, has had a profound impact on what he wanted to do with his life. He was raised by a single mother who often worked two jobs to make ends meet. He says there were more repeat offenders than college graduates in his family and although he attended Ivy League schools, financial concerns were always a problem. Davis holds a BA degree in economics from Georgetown University, a master's of science degree in psychology and economics from Oxford, and a master's from Harvard Business School. Now, after spending 15 years in the public and private sectors in New York City, Davis is addressing a serious economic issue. How do working-class families live and work in the neighborhoods they grew up in. With an investment of $425 million, Steinbridge Group is committed to providing high-quality housing for working-class residents in urban centers. Recently, In Black America spoke with Tawan Davis.
0: I think that everything deserves context. So, in fact, I like to talk about how my family moved to Oregon in the during the Great Migration. So when most folks went to Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, New York, other parts of the North, my family that was sharecroppers in Arkansas moved west to Oregon. And it was in the lead up to the Second World War. Winston Churchill was Secretary of the Navy. He was ordering ships from the Pacific Northwest and having them sold to Canada and then sold to the UK because the U.S. was neutral. The men in my family were building those ships in the shipyards of Oregon and Washington. And the women in my family who had also been sharecroppers were doing what they call day work, which is working for wealthy families up on the hill. And working in, uh, they were migrant workers, uh, picking berries and strawberries in Oregon's uh, agricultural uh, farm. So my family's been in Oregon for almost 100 years and in a very concentrated way. So uh, people don't think of Oregon as being particularly diverse, but uh, we were part of that, uh, that, uh, that coloration of the state.
1: Any brothers and sisters? I do, yeah. I have uh,
0: one sister that I grew up with and a brother and sister that as well. My mother raised my sister and I by herself in Oregon. and um, So, yeah, but uh, we're pretty tight. Uh, my siblings also have four cousins that I grew up with, like brothers. We uh, weren't wealthy growing up, and so I always laugh at how there were five of us boys and one girl cousin in our age bracket, and she had to sleep at the head of the bed, and all of us <laughs> had to sleep at the foot of the bed. <laughs> so that was... So, that was uh, so. yeah, I have a pretty strong extended family.
1: How did you happen to go from Oregon to Georgetown University on the other you coast?
0: Know, it, you know, I had never been, if, if you go up both sides of my family tree, it seems as if I'm the first person to finish college. We had a couple of fits and starts start there, and, uh, and the cousins that I'm still very close to today, a lot of them ended up in the system and were recidivists, and, or in and out of uh, that, and a couple of them, I don't think, finished high school and so not only was i the first to really kind of go but i was the first to finish and uh, there were a few reasons i was a huge georgetown basketball fan when john thompson was the coach alan iverson at that time was one of the star players and uh and so from uh, middle school through high school i wore a georgetown parker and then when somebody asked me where i was going to college i naturally said i'm going to georgetown <laughs> and then uh, but also bill clinton had a huge impact on, on me he was uh, I was just, uh, started college, started high school uh, around the year or maybe the year before, uh, after he became president. And uh, I remember his speech about at the Democratic National Convention about I still believe in a place called Hope. And he was raised by a single mother, and he was from a relatively poor family. He was from a smaller part of the world. His family was from Arkansas like my family was from Arkansas. And so I really identified with him that he was, had gone to Georgetown, and so he was a inspirational figure for me. And so that's kind of how I aimed my sights. I showed up in August of 1997 at the bottom of Georgetown's Hill site on St. I couldn't afford to do a top college tour. I'd never been there before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I dragged my trunk up New South Hill and started, uh, and started my college career there. It was a pretty impactful experience.
1: What adjustment did you have to make once you arrived on campus? You know, it's interesting. My,
0: I had worked to save up some money to pay for my first year. And uh, my mother uh, was a little upset with me when I left because we didn't have the money for me to go. And uh, when I told her that I had sent them my acceptances and threw away all of the other colleges that I had been accepted to, she got upset because she said we can't afford to send you to Georgetown. My response to her was, you, you, You've been saying all this time you got all this faith and you've got all this Lord. I said if He can, if He can, well, you know, give us a thousand cattle on a thousand hill, I believe He can put me through Georgetown. <laughs> <laughs> basically left initially without her blessing and uh, but it worked out fine the second year uh, I, I paid my, my frankly my church helped me to pay a little bit my first year second year i got what's called the george baker scholarship and basically they funded the bulk of my tuition from sophomore year forward and it was a dramatic adjustment you know i was not from it was a very elite university surrounded by people with resources for generations and uh, it was very very new to me i was not from the east coast and hadn't been to uh georgetown before i got there so it was a huge culture shock. And it took some time. It took some time, but it was the most impactful experience of my life. And it was the pivotal turning point uh, for everything that was uh, able to come out.
1: Why economics as a major?
0: I was 15 years old. I asked my grandmother, why were we so poor? And she could not answer the question. And so from about 15 to this day, it has been my focus to try to figure out, A, get my own family and uh, out of uh, economic dire straits. And second, figure out ways to progressively impact the same opportunities for uh, a larger communities. I wrote my college entrance exam on how do you, on financial possibilities. I wrote, when I went to grad school, I wrote my grad entrance uh, paper on taking real estate and using it to uh, impact communities. I wrote my graduate thesis on that. I wrote my business school entrance on that, I wrote my exit on that. I mean, this has been really the focus of my life for 20 years now this idea that um, that uh, there are opportunities for us to create our to create value to create uh, economic empowerment what I call an economic multiplier and uh, and to do it with what's in our hands
1: a lot of african americans do not have an opportunity to attend oxford tell us about that experience yeah, so i
0: let's see i had gone to i left georgetown i worked at Goldman Sachs when it before it was a bad word and uh it a, again it got me the opportunity to live in New York City and at that time before there was a kind of a Google boom and a Facebook boom people wanted to work on Wall Street and so I got uh an opportunity to work there. I got three job offers Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. I had no idea what they were because we don't have, we didn't have investment banks in Oregon as far as I know. I didn't know what an investment bank was. And so I asked a a friend of mine who was about 10 years older than I am, and uh, I asked him which job to take. And he said, go to Goldman Sachs. I said, well, Morgan Stanley's one of the people there. They all went to Georgetown. He said, go to Goldman Sachs. I said, said, well, Merrill Lynch is going to pay me more. He said, go to Goldman Sachs. So that opened up a whole possibility for me and at the time Goldman was the premier firm and probably still was on Wall Street that introduced me to New York and then I decided to go to either business school or law school and with my eyes set on law school I thought a good bridge to that would be some time abroad and not to waste time and having never lived to really travel much outside of the country before I didn't want to waste my time And so I decided to really focus on trying to get a grad degree so I went to Oxford and I studied I was in the sociology department and I studied economic impacts of nonprofits taking real estate a- assets to really uh, become major employers in their area with a focus on the rest melt uh, in upstate Michigan. Uh, and again, you know, the kind of a recurring thing is really trying to find ways to use what I call latent assets. I have what I call the latent asset theory that uh, there are assets that we have, real estate assets or interpersonal assets that we need to activate that will create opportunities for us in, in the long term.
1: When did you decide to found Steinbridge Group? I was 35-ish years old. I'm 39. I'll be 40 next
0: year. I was 35, 36-ish, probably 36-ish. And uh, I woke up one morning and I said to myself, what do I want to be doing at 50? And I had had some great, great career opportunities. I was blessed with a remarkable education. And uh, I thought to myself, what do I want to be doing at 50? And it was clear to me that I wanted to be able to be leading a firm, and I wanted to be able to do it in a way that was broadly impactful so that I didn't have to make the decision about whether to do well or to do good, but that the integration of those two is the driving force of our company's philosophy. And if you really think about the best businesses in the world, there are businesses that solve problems, that have identified a particular problem, and they solve that problem, and there is income opportunities in solving those problems and so that's really what i wanted to focus on and so for us that was real estate and that was uh, even furthermore in the last couple of years that's really become trying to solve the crisis of affordable housing in major cities in the united states and uh, and doing so uh, in a a private investment way
1: tell us about being socially responsible along with urban real estate
0: well our approach is that the average american family makes about fifty-three thousand dollars a year And um, and if you live on the eastern seaboard Mm -hmm. uh, in any of the major cities, it is very, very difficult to afford to acquire a house. And, uh, you know, before the financial crisis, people used to rent for about two to two and a half years after they got married. Now they rent for about seven years. Right. Um, there has been a uh, 18% at its nadir. There was an 18% drop in home homeownership uh, when I graduated college. People had between eight and twelve thousand dollars of, of debt on average. Now they have about thirty-four to thirty-nine, depending on whose numbers you believe, thousand dollars of debt. So home affordability, even for hardworking people, is very, very difficult in the in, in United States, particularly in, in the major cities. And those working people, people that make between forty, forty-five, and sixty, sixty-five thousand dollars, form the bedrock. Of the uh, metropolitan economy, they are your they are your postal workers and your teachers and your nurses and and people who work hard, make a decent living, have good credit, been at their job for a long time, but can't afford a three or four hundred thousand dollar house, mm-hmm. just to enter as a first home buyer in in the markets, and so they end up uh, now renting for longer. Our approach to that was to really try to resolve the problem of. Good quality housing for working people in the major cities. The initial um, response to the rental boom was to build these glass towers in these major cities. So all of these fancy apartment buildings that cost three and four and five thousand dollars got put up in Philadelphia and New York and DC and Boston. Well, the average family can't afford that. Uh, the average family can afford to spend about 30 percent of their income on housing. And so they can afford anywhere from 1000 to $1,500 a month, 900 to fifteen, depending on where they come in, and that's affordable to them. And so uh, there was no real response to the need for quality housing in and around the major cities for the people that formed the bedrock of the economy and for the people that need it most. So therein, our current housing strategy, which is to focus on working people, resolves that problem, but it also is a great investment strategy because we're investing in transitioning neighborhoods, we're investing work in areas where we can use our our economic predictors and see that values are going to be going up for every dollar we spend in acquiring a house we put another 30 cents in to rehab the house new roofs new bathrooms new kitchens you know basically we do a brand new house for folks and that is uh, allows uh, leads to our, our tenants staying longer because we create a home they want to live in and so we basically have Try to put together a strategy that responds to a need and at the same time is a very, very good return for its investments to our investors and to our financial partners. And the reason that's important is because I believe that for uh, minority communities and African American communities in particular, we have to figure out ways to independently create economic opportunities and, and wealth creation and job creation. We're an economic multiplier. We have at any given time, eight to 10 people working on a house and we probably have, you know, 20 houses under rehab at a time. So Mm -hmm. at any given time, we have 150 to 200 people working around Philadelphia on our houses. We are, our attorneys are minority. Uh, You know, one of our contracting partners is a large woman owned business, an African-American woman. we are not just—we uh, are not just doing this on our side, but we are also creating what I call an ecosystem of opportunity for people who may not otherwise get those opportunities at the scale that we're getting them. And that's hugely important. So, for all of these reasons, we're very, very focused on on the work we do, but also on the economic multiplier that we can create during that work.
1: I understand. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio, and we're speaking with Tawan Davis, Chief Executive Officer and Managing Partner at Steinbridge Group, a real estate investment company. Mr. Davis, talk to us about the crossroad of capital market disruption and demographic cycle changes. Sure. Well, here's
0: one thing. I have to remind people that African-Americans came to the United States in about 1619 on the eastern shores of Virginia to provide free labor for about 350 years. And then from the 13th and 14th Amendment that was passed after the Civil War, for another 100 years did not have opportunities, economic opportunities. So for about the first 350 years or so of the American economy, African Americans did not have ways in which to acquire and to save and to pass along money. It was not until the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Act really of 64 and 65 and then really under Nixon the affirmative action that began to chip away at the embedded economic barriers for African American people in the uh, in the economy. So America's economy is 400 years old, but the African American economy is only about 40 years old, mm-hmm. and that's really important. And the reason that's important is because if if you, the average African American family today has a net worth of about twelve thousand dollars, seventeen, if you depend on whose who whose number you're reading, the average American family has anywhere from one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty thousand, again, depending on whose number you're reading. If you were to have given every every slave one or two dollars, I think it is, in seventeen seventy-six, at the, uh, at, the uh, at the signing of the Declaration of Independence and allowed it to grow at the rate of the stock market, it would be worth about $130,000 to $140,000 today. So the time is money, right? And just like we know, the longer you uh, uh, get interest, the wealthier you become. Mm -hmm. So the African-American participation in this economy is only 40 years old in full, whereas the country has had 10 times that to gain its wealth. And so it's so important for us to view that in the context of our trying to play, frankly, catch up with the broader uh, with the broader American economy. and and I, I, and I think a lot of the work that I do really sees that as, as, as the challenge uh, that we're trying to address.
1: Why is the Eastern seaboard I guess you alls Bawick? Well, a few
0: reasons. So when there are other firms, Blackstone started a company called Invitation Homes, Colony Capital started a, uh, a company that went public and then merged with Waypoint, mm-hmm. all buying houses to rehab and to rent to American families. But when they did it, they did it in the suburbs and they did it in what's called the non-judicial states, Texas and Arizona where they can buy houses and Georgia where they can buy houses by the hundreds from a bank out of foreclosure. Mm -hmm. And they started these companies in the financial crisis by buying hundreds if not thousands of homes from Wells Fargo and Bank of America and other banks that had just foreclosed on tons of homes. Well, you can't do that in what's called the judicial states. And those are New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Maryland, and so forth. Those states have some of the most valuable real estate in the country. And yet each house has to go through the foreclosure process. And so there hasn't really been a program to really rehab homes and to present them to the market. And so that's why we focused on those on those states. Second is we focused on we really believe that, you know, the urban center is where it's at. The millennials are driven by more dense living. The uh, baby boomers are collapsing back on the urban centers to live and to retire, selling their homes in the suburbs. Roughly two thirds of American jobs are driven by the top 15 to 20 cities in the United States and their environs. And so I believe in the, in, the, in, the, in the power of the metropolitan center. And so if you take the idea that you've got these judicial states where you have to really buy a house one by one and you have the major drivers of the economy, you're talking about those cities on the eastern seaboard with maybe the exception of, uh, of LA and, and San Francisco out to the west. And so that's really what drew us to... To that, and the third is is this idea of these transitioning neighborhoods. You know, my church, for example, bought a, a bunch of houses in Harlem on 130th Street between Fifth and Madison
1: right. in the
0: late two, two, uh, two, uh, 90s and 2000s. Bought them for 100,000, maybe 200 in all in after rehab, and now they're worth two and a half, three million bucks. So the church is sitting on anywhere from 30 to 50 million dollars worth of real estate, and so this idea that these neighborhoods are transitioning rapidly and we want to be able to participate in that and build a bridge to that transition without displacing the people that are there. And that's really, really key to what we're doing. And so those are really the three reasons why you know Philadelphia to start, uh, Baltimore, northern New Jersey, uh, the outer boroughs of New York, uh, and Washington and Boston are the keys to, to our uh, strategy.
1: Why Philadelphia as this initial investment?
0: Sure, so we've dedicated about $60 million to our strategy in uh, Philadelphia. And that's because Philadelphia is bullseye for this idea. There have been dramatic changes in real estate in Philadelphia over the last 10 to 15 years. Graduate Hospital, which was historic uh, African-American community, has seen a 1,600% increase in property values. Uh, go a mile uh, to a mile and a half south to another neighborhood called Point Breeze that has experienced an 1,100% increase in property values all within a relatively short period of time. University City, which is West Philadelphia, starting at Drexel and UPenn Universities, going all the way West, has experienced a dramatic uh, increase in property values and there's a lot of institutional investment over there. And so Philadelphia is the perfect microcosm in which to really begin this strategy because it is a judicial state, because it is an urban center where, uh, uh, where that drives its regional economy, and because it has these transitioning neighborhoods where opportunities uh, exist for us, but also the opportunity to build the, bridge the gap to transition uh, exists for us as well.
1: How is you all model different from others because you are looking at the long term and I guess institutional investors uh, need a quick turnaround? Yeah, it's very
0: different in several ways. Number one, we don't flip. So we hold houses and we improve them. And we our goal is to build full businesses mm-hmm. and to be good neighbors and to be in these neighborhoods for a long period of time. and And, and that's an important one. We also are more institutional than maybe. the I mean, there are one of my favorite set of statistics is there are 133 million housing units in the United States. Of all of those housing units, about 84 million are single-family homes. So mm-hmm. that strips out all the apartments and condos. Of those 84 million single-family homes, about 22 million are for rent. And that includes about 3 or 4 million, two to four families. Of those 22 million houses that are for rent, only 300,000 are owned by investment companies. Almost all of the rental housing in the United States, even though it is the largest asset class, about $3 trillion, even though it represents one quarter of the American housing stock, only about 1.5% is owned by institutions or uh, institutional quality investors and what that ends up meaning is that a lot of these houses owned by second and third homes owned by families or individuals that may have inherited them and there just uh, isn't a lot of investment you get slumlordism you have a Mm -hmm. lot of uh, uh, bad landlords I mean some of these cities are just plagued I think slumlordism is not only a moral and ethical sin but it is bad business if you don't fix the pipes and you don't fix the roofs and you don't do you know treat your tenants well you end up eroding the value of your own asset you want them to stay you want them to be happy and when, if you ever have to sell or refinance the house, you want the value to stay there that you put in it. And so, you know, our view is that, um, you know, our approach to this is long-term. Our approach to this is to retain and and augment, improve the value of the homes that we invest in. And we are not gentrifiers in the in, in that way. Our, we're not taking these houses, putting 105% debt on them to have to put uh, build them real quick and then flip them to somebody. We're not doing that. We are buying them with cash often, uh, and then we will maybe put them on a the line of credit. But our goal is to rehab and hold. And if our neighbor wants to flip their house, fine. It helps our <laughs> property values, but we are great to hold. It's a very, very different approach uh, on that regard uh, than, than other people.
1: Tell us about your favorite Bible passage, Psalms 9012.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it, Lord teach us to number our days so that we may incline our hearts to wisdom. And, you know, it's interesting, the, the you know, the earth might be, I don't know, the universe, I don't know how old the universe is, maybe the earth is, a, maybe it's a billion years old, maybe the universe, the uh, earth is a few million years old, and, and maybe, you know, home, uh, human beings are you know, a million years old, and Homo sapiens sapiens are a couple hundred thousand years old, and we get 80 to 84 good years if we're, if we're blessed with them, and so that means that every day counts, that means that In a large arch of time, we get a twinkle of an eye. We get a snap of a finger. And we must use each of those days as if they matter. And so I'm a stickler for time. I get up early. I work out. I work. Try to spend quality time with the people I care about because it's just so clear to me that time gets away from us. And the, and most people's major mistake I find in life it doesn't have to do with uh, and all the time, whether they partner with or how they spend money, or it's how they use their time. Now it has implications for who you partner with and who you marry, and, 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 and what you do for work and how you spend your money. But if people could get the idea that the time is an irreplaceable resource, and uh, then I believe we would act differently, we would behave differently. We'd interact with other people differently because we only have so much time with them. And so I, I'm just a stickler for how we use our time. And, and that might be why I'm a, you know, a bit of a man in a hurry because, <laughs> uh, because I, I just I, my sense is that, that life is short. Uh, and and, I, and I, I, my goal is to try to make the most of what I can and be
1: as impactful as I can. I also understand that you have no patience for naysayers. You know, I got to tell you, funny because my team often tells me that I never hear the word no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and and
0: you can tell me no all I just don't hear it.
1: To Juan Davis, Chief Executive Officer and Managing Partner of the Steinbridge Group. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions about future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut Also, let us know what radio station you heard is over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O. Henson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be
0: purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.